preaching on Haggai, and, and I'm sure all of you went home and read the whole book this past week, right? Yes? Yep. Okay. And it's two chapters long. That second chapter is very, very long. So I am going to do what I do in all passages that are very, very long. I'm going to ask you to trust me that I will include all of the verses inside the sermon as we study the word together. Now, if you missed last week, here's where we are. Haggai is a minor prophet. He's got this tiny, tiny little book, number 37 of 39 in the Old Testament, right in between the Z guys, if you need to look it up in the Bible. And Haggai has one job, just one job. His job is to tell the people to rebuild the temple. So last week we talked about how the temple got destroyed, how everybody got sent to Babylon, and here we are 50-some years later, they have come back, they're going to rebuild the temple, and we get off to a false start because they get discouraged, and now what do we do? And so that's where we are this morning. Let's pray together and we'll study the word. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, can you remember, can you remember back in the day when you could bend over and pick something up and every bone in your body would not creak in the process? Do you, do you remember when kids could play outside all day long, completely unsupervised, as long as they were home for dinner? Can you remember when gas was 75 cents a gallon? Start thinking really hard. Go back. See, those, those were the good old days. Until you tell your grandkids about them. Because the grandkids have a different perception of what is good. The kids in our church have a different perception of what is good. Because right now, their bodies move quickly and easily. So they do not understand this creaking and moaning and groaning that old people have. Right now, the idea that they would find themselves playing outside for hours and hours and hours without adult supervision, much less their electronics, seems incredibly insane to them. Right now, they've never known gas prices to be 75 cents a gallon, and quite frankly, they don't care because most of them don't drive anyway. So it's not a big deal to them. Today, God is giving us some encouragement about our times of discouragement. And he starts by calling us to look ahead and not backwards. Last week, we got to hear about one of the most motivating sermons that was ever preached by a prophet. And I, and I say that it's one of the most motivating because it's one of the few sermons that a prophet preached where everybody immediately responds. It was a quick response. He gave one of those types of sermons, Haggai did, that would light that fire under you to, to leave right away and, and go start a diet and become a marathon runner and, and start a new company and, and drop everything and just travel the world. It was that motivating, so much so that it motivated the Jews to get up, do something, start rebuilding the temple, get going. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Something just, just motivated you. you. You saw something on TV or you heard a song or you had a friend who was so successful and just motivated you to just go in this whole new direction. You're going 
you're going to save more money, and you're going to be healthier, you're going to recycle, you're going to read more books, and you, you dove right in, full speed, right into that. I love it every year we get to the start of the new year, and inevitably somebody in the church comes to me and says, oh, guess what, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and then, then they get to the end of Genesis, and they're like, oh, I did that last year. That's good. That's good. So what happens is you read Genesis for 30 years in a row and never discover that there's more to it than, than that. But see, here's the thing. We can get so motivated. We can get going on something. But, but, then, but then the schedule changes and our routine changes or, or we go on vacation or there's an unexpected emergency at the house or, or something has come up and, and we were going to do it, we were, we were totally going to do it, but then we didn't do it, and, and then we felt bad about not doing it, so we stopped doing it, and it just, the whole thing just built up into this big ball of discouragement, so we just kind of gave up. That's a huge part of, of what happened last week to the Jews when they were trying to rebuild the temple. They had started to build this temple, and, and it was a slow and torturous process because any kind of building is a slow and torturous process. And then the minute that just a little bit of opposition came along, they got discouraged and, and they, they gave up. So today, we're going to pick up where they left off and we're going to return to the building of the temple as, as they were getting ready to enter the rebuilding process again. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Haggai is pointing out that, that some of the people who are standing there trying to rebuild this are so hung up on what they remember the temple to be that they're standing there in the early, restoration, early stages of the restoration, they can't even imagine that they're going to get that temple back to its former glory, and so they are very discouraged. This is one of the refrains that we heard when, when the Notre Dame Cathedral caught on fire earlier this year. What was the immediate response? It's never going to be the way that it was. They're never going to get it back to the way that it was. People immediately started lamenting that there would never be a return to glory. But if you read Haggai and his contemporaries, you find out that these memories, these, these perceptions, they're a matter of perspective. Because Ezra reports in chapter 3 that the younger people were rejoicing. They were so excited about this rebuild of the temple, and it was the older ones who were weeping. Why is that? Is it that the Bible is pitting generation against generation? Not really. That's not what's happening. But for the younger generation, they don't have those memories. They never got to see the temple in all of its glory, so they have no idea, no idea what it is that it's supposed to look like, no expectations for that because they never experienced those glory days. So for them, it is all new, and it's all exciting. They don't have a framework for comparison, and that can be such an incredible blessing. When, when we were out west a few weeks ago, one of the stops that we made was in a place called Winslow, Arizona. 
Do you know what's in Winslow, Arizona? There's a corner. There's a corner. There is a corner in Winslow, Arizona, and you can go stand on it. You can stand on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. And I will tell you that many people come every single day and stand on this corner in Winslow, Arizona. But my kids didn't get it. Kids did not get this at all. My mom, totally thrilled, totally thrilled. I was kind of non-committal, Gen X sort of thing. But my kids, my kids were super confused by this. Because unless you're a fan of the Eagles, and you know the song, Take It Easy, or you're a child of a fan when the song came out, the whole idea of standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona, which, by the way, has nothing else going on for it, nothing else in this whole town. It sounds absolutely absurd. And so my mom and I had this conversation about what is going to happen to Winslow, Arizona when my generation passes away and the next generation could absolutely care less. See, without reference, the younger generation, they can't make a comparison to this temple. And what a gift it is because we can do a bang-up job of discouraging ourselves as soon as we start making comparisons to what we think it should be. And we do that. We all do that. We, we compare our lives to our friends' lives, and we compare our marriages and kids and jobs and retirement plans. And, and in our efforts to make sure that we stay on top, we often remember the past with a nostalgia that isn't always entirely accurate. A couple weeks ago, Netflix released the third season of a television show called Stranger Things. And I have loved, loved, loved watching Stranger Things with my daughter because Stranger Things is set in the 1980s, which is, which is my childhood. And when it first aired, when this season first aired, there was this big hoopla that the Coca-Cola company was going to bring back new Coke because the characters in Stranger Things were drinking new Coke. So we got into this conversation about this and, and how excited all these people were that new Coke was, was coming back. And in the middle of the conversation, Sung and I remembered a really, really important fact about new Coke. New Coke is absolutely, totally, irrefutably disgusting. <laughs> right? But we've forgotten that because that was years ago. And now it's cool again because Stranger Things is, is doing it. See, when we live in the past, we don't get to fully embrace what's going on in the present. So God responds. God responds to those of us who look back by saying, yet now, right now, like in this moment, take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all of you people of the land, says the Lord, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you right now. Do not fear. So God is here now. When we're discouraged, we tend to forget that. We can totally see God in hindsight. How many times have you looked back at your life and said, oh yeah, that's, I saw God working in that. But we don't usually see it when we're going through a tough time. It's easy for us to think God ducked out on us. But Haggai uses the word now, right now. 
And if you take out all of those other words in between, and there's a lot of them, what this comes down to is God saying, I'm with you right now. I promised that I would be with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides with you. You don't have to fear. These people are in the middle of a massive building campaign after total devastation and exile, and they're facing clear opposition. This whole situation is ripe, ripe for discouragement. And right in the middle of it, Haggai stands up and he says to the people, God's here. He's with us right now. We don't have to fear, which is good news, which is good news. Even better news is that God's committed to going with us into the future. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor because God knows it's going to be rebuilt. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. So we don't exactly know what this building is going to look like, but we do know this, God's promises, it's going to be even better than what we thought that it was before. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. God doesn't promise the people that it's going to get back exactly the way that it was. He promises that it's going to be even better than it was before. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. That may not be what we want to hear, especially if what we're clinging to is a remembrance of something that we thought that was great. But what a fantastic promise for the future. God's going to be there, and God's going to do great things there, but it is up to us as to whether or not we're going to go and be a part of it. Last week, I was having a discussion with one of the parents here at the church about backpacks, because it's back to school time, and we're talking about going back to school. And this is an eye-rolling topic at the Lee house. My family hates this discussion because I have owned the exact same backpack since the sixth grade. Okay, true story. This backpack is a classic L.L. Bean dark green backpack. It was there for my first day of middle school, high school, college and graduate school went with me on all of my mission trips every short-term trip i've ever taken and was just on our family vacation a couple weeks ago so to say that i love this backpack is a wee bit of an understatement but about five years ago i started having some trouble with one of the zippers it's really hard to get the zipper to work when the fabric around it is, is starting to fray but there is good news, because L.L. Bean has a lifetime guarantee on all of their backpacks. So I should just send this backpack in, right? Wrong. Wrong answer. Because this backpack is so old and so worn that they're not going to repair it. What are they going to do? They're going to send me a new one. I don't want a new one. It will never be my old one. The new one will not go to all of the places that I went to. It will never have the same memories. I don't care if my current one is actually now unusable 
and therefore completely useless because what do you do with a backpack that does not work anymore? But I don't want a new one because if I get a new one, then I will have to do new things. And I will have to have new adventures, and I will have to go new places, and I will have to make new memories. And you know what? That's just a lot of work. And I don't want to do that. I'm not going to lose anything by getting a new backpack. I only stand to gain, but I don't want to do it because the former glory in my mind is far better than whatever is ahead of me. There's an opportunity in there. There's nothing that I can do about the past. But I have to decide how it is that I'm going to live in the present. Now, I can do that with bitterness and regret, or I can do that with hope and optimism. The choice that I make is going to impact not only today, but it will impact tomorrow. And God's promise is that he's going to be with us right now in the present, and he's already preparing an even better future for us. He's going to shake the world with his glory. That's what he said. He's going to shake the nations. Remember, this is an Old Testament promise, and it came true in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and he shook the nations, God has a history of preparing an even better future. So if you want to hold on to God's glory days, hold on to all of those promises that God fulfilled, because then you can count on him for what's going forward. The challenge, of course, is for us to believe that promise. And that requires us to press forward in an obedience to the Lord. So on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest for a ruling. Now I want you to think about this, especially those of you that cook things and have culinary skills. If one carries consecrated meat in the fold of one's garment, and with the fold touches bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? I know you think about this a lot, right? <laughs> the priest answered, no. Well, then Haggai says, well, if one who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered, yes, it becomes unclean. Haggai then said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, says the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. But now consider, consider what will come to pass from this day on. This is just like last week where he says, consider how this is going for you. He wants you to think about it again. Before stone was placed upon stone in the Lord's temple, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. But, but, so it was, things were not going well, but consider from this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since that day, the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is there any seed left in the barn? Did the, the vine, the fig, the tree, the pomegranate, the olive oil tree still yield nothing? From this day on, I will bless you. Two things in all of these words that the Lord is trying to point out through Haggai. First is that holiness doesn't come by contact. So if you are discouraged, if you are personally discouraged, 
that is something that you are going to have to work through because I cannot believe for you. Your neighbor cannot be obedient to the Lord for you. Your mama can't have faith for you. So discouragement is something that you have to work out with you and the Lord. You can have people around you, and that's what we're getting to. You can have people around you, but they cannot be responsible for making your discouragement go away. The second thing is, if you surround yourself with unclean things, you'll become unclean too. Meaning that in your times of discouragement, if you surround yourself with those who are like-minded in their discouragement, and they lead lives that reflect a hopelessness, you expose yourself to being consumed by their discouragement as well. I have a friend who is a psychologist. She works with a lot of teenagers. And she was telling me that depression is, is a thing right now. Like, it's a, it's a cool thing to have. And if you don't have depression, then something's wrong with you. And she said, she said it's really crazy. It's really crazy because she said what happens is they get together and they feed off of it. And then there's a contest to see who can be more depressed. Well, that's this concept, that if you surround yourself with people who are negative and who are depressed, then you do not let yourself get to a place where you can get better. The Haggai also points out yet again God's promise for the future, which stands in direct contrast to the current situations of discouragement. You know, when you're standing there in a heap of discouragement, it's hard to hear that there is a future. But you've got to start moving. <clears throat> you've got to start moving, even if it's just a little bit in the direction of that future. Otherwise, you just stay where you are planted. And what God is saying here is that this doesn't happen overnight. This is a concept that, that people in agriculture understand very, very well. You may have a season of failed crops. It's not like you can just turn it around two days later and all of a sudden everything is great again. It takes some time. It takes a growing season. It takes working and tilling the soil for it to correct itself. God's promise, though, is it will happen. Problem is that sometimes we get weary in our service to the Lord and we wonder, are these efforts in vain? And God says, plant the seed and let me take care of the harvest. You do something little, plant it, let me handle how we're going to get going from there. So while we're doing that, we need to prepare ourselves for the reward. And this is the craziest part of this entire book. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and of nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall fall, every one by the sword of a comrade. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Sheatil, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. At first glance, it, it sounds like the encouraging part here is that we're going to be signet rings. That's what we're going to get out of this whole deal. Pastor Hope just took us through two weeks of a little small-known prophet to find out that we're all going to be signet rings. Do we even have those anymore? How is that encouraging 
to us? Well, you have to know a little bit about your biblical history. Zerubbabel is the one who took the people back to the temple. And he's the one who is doing his best to be obedient and to be faithful and to get that temple rebuilt. He is trying to be faithful to God even in the midst of massive discouragement. But it turns out that being a signet ring is a big deal for Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel had a grandfather. His grandfather was a guy named Jeconiah. He was also called Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, many, many, many years prior to this, had been one of the last kings of Judah before the Babylonian Empire. He was considered to be one of the worst kings of the entire Old Testament, and he is responsible for making sure that the people turn completely away from God, tipping off the Babylonian exile. He is the wicked king. Well, in Jeremiah 22, God pronounced a curse on Jehoiakim and the family. And this is what it said. He said, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. So what he's saying is, you were important. You were my chosen one. I loved you. I am so done with you that I pull you off my hand. But now, now, Several generations later, as the people have returned to God, we get to see God's grace in action when God says to Zerubbabel, you will be a signet ring. You have been restored. You are mine forever. This is getting us getting to see the promises of God's grace. God waits for us to return to him. And sometimes we're so wrapped up in the, in the past and in that discouragement that we just can't see him standing right there in front of us. Discouragement is one of the greatest ways for the devil to cloud our vision and to keep us from seeing God in our present circumstances so that we are unable to move forward to her, towards his grace. So I want you to hear this good news, brothers and sisters. God has promised us that he has been there, he is here right now, and he is going on ahead of us. And that for as great as whatever it is that we've been through, or as rough as whatever it is that we have been through has been, where we're going and the future that he has in store for us is greater than we could ever possibly imagine. And that is very good news. Let's pray together. Lord God, I, I pray, I pray your spirit of hope and power in the lives of every person in this room who is feeling discouraged this day. For those who have lost sight of you, who can't see that you have a better tomorrow prepared for them. I pray, Lord, that each one of us would have the courage to take that step, just, just one step at a time towards you, realizing that it is a journey that will take time and will have opposition and, and will have discouragement. But when those days come, remind us that your promises are secure and solid and steadfast. You were there then, you are here now, you will be with us forever. In your name we pray. Amen.